Tonight, we're moving into chapter two of Isaiah, and I've titled this The Ideal Jerusalem, Lost and Found. And my goal, we'll see if we get there, but I kind of wanted to take as a unit chapter two through chapter four. And the reason for that is pretty much most commentators see this as a unit in which it begins and ends with an idealistic picture of Jerusalem. And so we have really at the beginning a a beautiful picture of God's intention for the city of Jerusalem. But then the, the bulk of the center of this section is Isaiah dealing with the reality that's on the ground in Jerusalem in his day. And so he, he starts out by painting the ideal Jerusalem, but then he says, here's what's really happening. Here's what's really going on in Judah among God's people. And it's not a pretty picture. It, it's, a, it's a very stark contrast to the idealistic picture of Jerusalem that he paints at the beginning. So he, it's a very strong rebuke of, of judgment because of the sin that they have fallen into as the people of God. But then at the end, again, it ascends and, and looks to the future again, to the fact that the way things are now in this kind of dark, sinful period in Jerusalem's history, that's not the final answer, that, that there is a glorious future that is coming and will come. And so it's a, you got two crescendos on each side and kind of the valley in between describing what was really happening in uh, Isaiah's day. And so if we can, I want to try to do that overview of those, of those three chapters and kind of see how he develops that message. And so chapter two begins with uh, just the heading. In a way, it's very similar to the first verse of Isaiah 1 in which Isaiah identifies himself and also talks about the fact that this is a vision from the Lord. So when he says in verse number one, this is what Isaiah, son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, that idea of there to see is not just to see from the human perspective. In other words, Isaiah here is not just making some human observations of what's going on in Jerusalem and Judah. But this idea of seeing corresponds with the first verse of chapter one, where it is revealed that he had a vision from the Lord, the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos. So when this talks about seeing, this is prophetic seeing. This is seeing in the sense of the Lord revealing this to him as a message from the Lord. And so this is Isaiah's message. And this verse kind of introduces the next major section of Isaiah. And then in the next few verses, he paints a picture of the ideal Jerusalem. Kind of an an idea, kind of with the idea of this is what Jerusalem is supposed to be. And what could have been, what might have been, had they obeyed and followed God's word. But also with the understanding that that this is what God does have in store for the future as well. And so this is God's ideal picture of Jerusalem. And so we see a description of the Lord's temple in verse number two. And Isaiah says, 
in the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of the mountains. It will be exalted above the hills and all nations will stream to it. And so it's a picture of Jerusalem on the heights. And the, it's a very visual image, isn't it? And that's one of the things that, that makes the prophets very intriguing and interesting to read is that when they deliver their messages, it's, it's almost always in word pictures in, in presenting this imagery. And so Isaiah describes Jerusalem as sitting on this high mountain above all the earth. Now, geographically speaking, in terms of topography or geology, we know that Jerusalem is not the highest mountain in the world, right? So Mount Zion, Jerusalem is exalted. It is lifted up in terms of the terrain around it. But geographically speaking, it's not the highest mountain in the world. But what he's talking about here is not geographically. He's talking theologically, isn't he? He's talking about the fact that in terms of importance, in terms of its central place in God's plan, that Jerusalem would be the center and all of the nations would flow into it. And this goes back a couple of weeks to some of the introductory themes that I mentioned. And that is that Isaiah focuses on Judah and Jerusalem but you can see here his, his also in the peripheral is his focus on the nations. And that, and that ultimately in God's plan, God's plan is intended to, in a sense, cause a ripple effect from Jerusalem, from the Israelite people outward. So that through the Israelite people drawing the nations to himself, he would fulfill the Abrahamic covenant. That I will make you great and you will be a blessing. In you, all the families on the earth will be blessed. And so Isaiah is carrying that forward and, and showing the people of Judah through Isaiah that this is what the Lord has in store. This is what's going to happen. And then, so we see the Lord's temple where the Lord will be worshipped and exalted. And then we see also the Lord's people and his word. And so in verse number three, it says, many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. The law will go out from Zion, the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And so this is, again, factoring in verse two, the nations will stream into it, that this is kind of a universal picture of all the peoples of God, Jew and Gentile alike, coming to worship the Lord and to, to build their lives on his word with Jerusalem and the temple and the Torah inside the Ark of the Covenant in the temple, kind of being the visual representation of the centrality of the word of God for his people. And so all the people will come worship the Lord and focus on his word and they will treasure his word. And then it talks about the fact that the Lord's peace at this time when Jerusalem is exalted, when the Lord is exalted at this future time of glory, that the Lord will bring a great peace over the earth that can only happen through the power of the Lord. And so the Lord's peace, it says he will judge between the nations. He will settle disputes for many peoples. They will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks 
Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war anymore. Essentially, verse 4 is describing world peace, isn't it? World peace. In which, but that's not going to happen from any human doing, is it? The whole world right now would love to see that happen. We have wars and civil wars and wars between countries and and uh, ethnic groups battling against each other, battling for resources, battling for preeminence, power, and it, it's all over the world. And everyone has, I think, built in them this desire for peace, but it's very elusive. And as a human people, we will never get there on our own. The only way that's going to happen is when the Lord, the righteous judge, brings it and establishes peace throughout the world. And Isaiah is looking forward to that time. Now, for us, think about the fact that as we're reading this now, 2,600 years or so, 2,700 years after the time of Isaiah, this is still to be fulfilled. This is still to be fulfilled. There are elements that we might could say were fulfilled in the time when Jesus came and visited Jerusalem and he was there as the presence of God among the people. But in its fullness, this still needs to be fulfilled, doesn't it? And so from the people of Judah's perspective in 700 BC, as well as from our perspective, we're still looking forward to it. And so we long for this day. And so this is the ideal Jerusalem. This is what God is going to do. But the sad reality of it is that that's not what's happening in Isaiah's day. So the actual Jerusalem and what's going on in Isaiah's day is that the people of Israel have forsaken the Lord. And as a result, the people of the Lord, the people of Judah, they are going to feel the, the, the chastisement, the judgment of the Lord on them. And so the actual Jerusalem, which is the house of Jacob forsaken, chapter 2, verse 5, through the beginning of chapter 4. And so Isaiah is clearly concerned that no one fails to deal with their sins, what's going on in their lives. And so he's presenting this idealistic picture, but then he's going to turn and he's going to address them personally and powerfully to remind them that this is not what's happening now, but this is the future that God has in store for his people, but, but not a people who are living in idolatry, not a people who are living in rebellion against the Lord. But the ones who will inherit this kind of picture of Jerusalem are the ones who have been redeemed by the Lord, the ones who have repented, the ones who are trusting in the Lord. And so, but right now it's a difficult time in Israel. And one of the things that characterizes Israel during the time of Isaiah is that they were trusting in people. They were trusting in people. They were trusting in mankind. Instead of looking to the Lord for their strength, they were trusting princes. And they were trusting their military might. They were trusting their wealth, their resources. They weren't trusting the Lord. And so they had a sense that they were full and they were powerful. But Isaiah is going to remind them that you think you're full, but you're actually empty. You're actually empty. And so Isaiah begins this discussion in verse 5, and he says, Come, 
descendants of Jacob, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You, Lord, have abandoned your people, the descendants of Jacob. They are full of superstitions from the east. They practice divination like the Philistines and embrace pagan customs. You can see already that that one of the issues that Isaiah is dealing with is the fact that Judah was not content with the Lord's word and with his power. They felt like they had to go elsewhere to get additional help. And so they went out seeking in the the world of their pagan neighbors, divination and the practices of the Philistines and all of these false systems of worship. And so their land is full of silver and gold. There's no end to their treasures. Their land is full of horses. There's no end to their chariots. In other words, they have a lot of stuff. A lot of money. They have chariots. They have chariots are used in warfare. So they have a strong army. Their land is full of idols. They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their fingers have made. So people will be brought low and everyone humbled. Do not forgive them. That's a powerful message, isn't it? Lord, basically what Isaiah is saying to the, to the people of Judah is, I am right now as a go-between between you and the Lord. I'm telling you that you have forsaken the Lord, and as a result, the Lord has forsaken you. And as long as you are in this condition of complete rebellion against the Lord. He's saying, Lord, don't turn your face toward them. That's a strong message, isn't it? And so this is a time in which the people think they're full. They think they have treasures. They think they have chariots. They think they have everything that they need. But Isaiah says, you're going to be humbled. You're going to be brought low. Go into the rocks, hide in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. The eyes of the arrogant will be humbled and human pride brought low and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. Now, there's a lot here that we can think on, isn't there? I think as we as we think about the people of Israel in that day, Isaiah is telling them, you have, you have left your dependence on the Lord. And you've gone after other worldly things to find strength, to find security, to find happiness, to find worship. And, and you think that you found everything that you're looking for in these things. So in your chariots and in your men, you think you found strength. In your practices of divination, you think you found wisdom and guidance. In your worship of idols, you think you've found true worship. But in reality, Isaiah says, you're full of pride. And the the ground on which you're standing is very sandy. And it's going to shift and you're going to fall. And so this lofty position that you think you're in, it's going to come crashing down. So 
couple of applications. One is, and, and I want to be careful that I, I don't equate Israel with America because the two are not in the same. They're not in the same kind of relationship with the Lord. The, the Lord had a special covenant relationship with Israel. That's not necessarily the case with the United States of America. But just to make a comparison for a moment, America is putting its trust in what it can do, right? In its resources, in its strength, in its alliances, in, in its own wisdom, in its secularism and its ability to think like it has the path to scientific truth and knowledge and technology, whatever it is, just a reminder is all those things are very shaky ground. Very shaky ground. But then let's turn it to the church as well. And I think in terms of the church, there's a temptation for the church of God to abandon the things that make the church great. And what is it that makes the church great is God and his word and the power of the Holy Spirit and the Lord's table and baptism, the, the means of grace that he's given to us. And, and what happens is sometimes in the church is that we feel like in order to become stronger, in order to grow, in order to make progress, that we need to abandon our dependence on the Lord and his means, and we need to go out and we need to find other human ways of growing strong or growing in numbers. But when you build a church on man-made things, that's a shaky foundation as well. And that facade that you see built up through all those things, that can come quickly crashing down. But a church that is built on a strong foundation of the word, on the spirit, on, on the Lord and dependence on him, that is a strong foundation. And it can endure persecution and threats and downtimes and difficulties. So as a church, I just want to remind us of the, of the message of Isaiah. Let's not put our trust in the things of this world. Because if we get lifted up in pride in that sense, God can bring us low, can't he? And so that's Isaiah's message to them, is you think that you're powerful, you think you're full, but you're really empty. And you think you're high, but you're going to be brought down low. Verse 12, the Lord Almighty has a day in store for all the proud and lofty, for all that is exalted, and they will be humbled. For all the cedars of Lebanon, tall and lofty, and all the oaks of Bashan. For all the towering mountains and all the high hills, for every lofty tower and every fortified wall, for every trading ship and every stately vessel, the arrogance of man will be brought low and human pride humbled. The Lord alone will be exalted in that day and the idols will totally disappear. Again, he's talking about in that day, isn't he? If we correlate it with in the last day when Jerusalem is going to be exalted, then perhaps we're looking forward to the end, the last day of judgment. When the Lord is ultimately going to be going to bring low every element of human pride, isn't he? And all of this that they've trusted in will be all for nothing. And the Lord alone will be the one left standing, the one who is exalted and so, again, he's talking about things in which people have a tendency to put their trust. 
trading ships, powerful vessels, lofty towers, high walls for fortification, things of beauty like the oaks of Bashan or the cedars of Lebanon, things of beauty also building materials in which they can use to make things that are beautiful. And Isaiah says all those things are going to fall down and fade away. You think you're high, but you're going to be brought low. And so much so humbled that you're going to be fleeing to the rocks and the caves. Verse 19, people will flee to caves in the rocks and to holes in the ground from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty when he rises to shake the earth. In that day, people will throw away to the males and to the moles and the bats, their idols of silver and idols of gold, which they made to worship. They will flee to caverns in the rocks and to the overhanging crags from the fearful presence of the Lord and the splendor of his majesty. When he rises to shake the earth, stop trusting in mere humans who have but a breath in their nostrils. Why hold them in esteem? Isaiah is reminding us here that, that the Lord is so powerful that when he comes to judge, nothing can stand. And those who have been in rebellion against the Lord, they're going to flee for their lives and look for any hole or crack that they can to hide in to protect them from the Lord Almighty. And interestingly enough, doesn't Jesus use this very similar language in Matthew 24 when he talks about the coming day of the Lord, about people running and saying, let the rocks fall on us? I think Revelation uses similar language to that as well. Let the rocks fall on us. Hide us from the wrath of the Lamb. And so there's coming a day in which people will be judged. And Isaiah is saying to the people of Judah, you need to be on the right side when that day of judgment comes. So stop trusting people. Stop trusting in what man can do for you because it's just folly. It's a complete folly of human dependence. And what he then says in chapter three is that the Lord in his judgment, in his bringing low of his people, he's going to strip them of their majesty, strip them of their glory, strip them of their power. And, and instead of having great leaders, they're going to have immature boys leading them. Instead of great righteous leaders, they're going to have people that are going to plunder them and steal from them and oppress them. In other words, a time of difficulty is coming for the Lord's people because of their rebellion against him. And so they're going to end up with boys instead of men leading them. Chapter 3, verse 1. See now the Lord, the Lord Almighty, is about to take from Jerusalem and Judah both supply and support all supplies of food and all supplies of water, the hero and the warrior, the judge and the prophet, the diviner and the elder, the captain of 50 and the man of rank, the counselor, skilled craftsman and clever enchanter. I will make mere youths their officials. Children will rule over them. People will oppress each other, man against man, neighbor against neighbor. The young will rise up against the old and, and nobody against the honored, the nobody, the, the poor, the no-names, 
against the honored. In other words, what Isaiah is presenting here is a complete reversal of what you normally see in society, right? Normal in a, normally in a stable society, you see strong leadership. You see wise people. You see people of skill and craftsmen. You see strong warriors leading their armies. And what Isaiah is saying is, in the Lord is bringing you down low, he's going to completely turn that on its head. And instead of strong leaders, you're going to have youths who have no experience and no wisdom. Like the blind leading the blind. And so boys for men. God's going to strip away their pride. And then instead of gracious leadership, he's going to give them oppressive leadership. Verse number six says, A man will seize one of his brothers in his father's house and say, You, you have a cloak. You be our leader. In other words, just grab anybody to come be our leader. Take charge of this heap of ruins. But in that day he will cry out, I have no remedy. I have no food or clothing in my house. Do not make me the leader of the people. In other words, totally destitute. Bringing them low. And then, instead of great leadership, he's going to give them plundering leadership. Jerusalem staggers. Judah is falling. Their words and deeds are against the Lord, defying his glorious presence. The look on their faces testifies against them. They parade their sin like Sodom. They do not hide it. Woe to them. They have brought disaster upon themselves. This is not the first time that he's brought up Sodom and Gomorrah, is it? He's brought up Sodom and Gomorrah before. And so there he says, you're, you're just so rebellious against the Lord that you're flaunting your sin like Sodom. Tell the righteous that it will be well with them, for they will enjoy the fruit of their deeds. But woe to the wicked. Disaster is upon them. They'll be paid back for what their hands have done. Youths oppress my people. Women rule over them. My people, your guides, lead you astray. They turn you from the path. The Lord takes his place in court. He rises to judge the people. The Lord enters into judgment against the elders and leaders of his people. And here's what the Lord says about the leaders. It is you who have ruined my vineyard. The plunder from the poor is in your houses. What do you mean by crushing my people and grinding the faces of the poor, declares the Lord, the Lord Almighty. In other words, Isaiah has a very strong message of judgment for the leaders. Because instead of being tender shepherds, they've been oppressive masters who have stolen from the people. And especially those who were in the greatest need, they've stolen from them and filled their houses with their goods. And then he says, you're going to have shame instead of beauty. And so instead of strong men leading you, you're going to have boys. Instead of faithful, caring leaders, you're going to have people who are fleecing the flock. Instead of beauty, you're going to have shame. And here Isaiah directs his words to apparently the high and mighty women of Jerusalem who were kind of flaunting their their wealth and flaunting their beauty and and all the things that they had. And Isaiah says to them, you're going to be brought low. And so the Lord says, the women of Zion are haughty, walking along with outstretched necks, flirting with their eyes, strutting along with swaying hips, with ornaments 
jingling on their ankles. Therefore, the Lord will bring sores on the heads of the women of Zion. The Lord will make their scalps bald. In that day, the Lord will snatch away their finery, the bangles and headbands and crescent necklaces, the earrings and bracelets and veils, the headdresses and anklets and sashes, the perfume bottles and charms, the signet rings and nose rings, the fine robes and the capes and cloaks, the purses and mirrors and the linen garments and tiaras and shawls. In other words, all this stuff that people put all their pride in, God's going to take it away. And now when it says, for example, that instead of hair, they're going to be bald, is that literal? It's hard to say. I mean, for some, perhaps. When, when the people of Babylon come and attack Jerusalem and besiege it, they're not going to show any mercy. For some, that might be literal. But I think what Isaiah is really getting at is kind of metaphorical. And that is the idea that, that all of this that you've put your, your identity in, your hope in, your, your status in, all that's going to be taken away. Now, just think about the fact that in, in many, many cultures, but in the United States, we put a lot, of, especially in our current culture, a lot of emphasis is placed on external beauty, isn't it? A lot of emphasis placed on external beauty. I mean, just watch the infomercials on TV, right? Here's how you can take care of the wrinkles in your skin. Here's how you can tuck this and slim that. And here's how you can get more hair on the top of your head. I could probably use those commercials. But here's, here's all, all the ways you can make yourself look better. Here's all these diet products. Here's these home exercise products. Here's... Here's all of this that you can gain weight and get, get muscle. And here's how you can slim up if you want to lose weight. And, and so much of an emphasis on external beauty. And apparently for a certain segment of Israelite society, probably the, the nobles, the, the more wealthy women, they had this culture in which they would walk around flaunting their wealth and flaunting their beauty. And God says, it's going to, be, it's going to come to nothing. It's going to come to nothing. In other words, you're putting your trust in the wrong things. And so instead of fragrance, there will be a stench. Instead of a sash, a rope, probably a rope of slavery, of being led off into captivity. Instead of well-dressed hair, baldness. Instead of fine clothing, sackcloth. Instead of beauty, branding. Again, probably slavery. Your men will fall by the sword, your warriors in battle. The gates of Zion will lament and mourn, destitute. She will sit on the ground. This is talking about the fall of Jerusalem. And what's going to happen to all your beauty then? You're going to become slaves of the enemy because of your sin. In that day, women will take hold of one man and say, we will eat our own food and provide our own clothes. Only let us be called by your name. Take away our disgrace. In other words, it's a, it's a time of great desperation, is what it's describing. Great desperation. And so this is what's coming because this is how you have acted. But now, the Lord's not going to completely abandon his people. So here's the ideal picture of Jerusalem, but here's what's really happening now, and here's what's going to happen in the near future. You're going to fall. You're going to be brought low. But that's not the end of the story for Mount Zion, is it? 
That's not the end of the story. There is a glorious future. So there is a new Jerusalem. There's an ideal Jerusalem that is still coming. And it is the greatness of Jerusalem that is yet to be. Chapter 4, verses 2 through 6. He looks future again, and he says, In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. What is the idea of the branch? This is the first time this word, this theme occurs in Isaiah. And if you notice in the translation, it has it with a capital B. Why? Because this is probably referring to the Messiah. This is referring to Jesus. We get a clearer picture of that in chapter 11, that this branch is a person. And the branch, the reason it uses that terminology is because it is a branch out of the root of Jesse. And so, in other words, it is a, it is a branch off of the family tree, the line of King David. He's a son of David, and he is a future son of David that is coming. And it's also interesting, too, because in Isaiah, he also talks about the idea of a uh, stump of a tree that's going to be left in the land after they go into exile. In other words, God is going to bring judgment. He's going to cut down their beautiful tree representing Judah, and they're going to go off into captivity. But there's still going to be a stump there out of which is going to regrow a new tree. In other words, there's a remnant that's going to come back home, and out of that regrown tree, there will also be a branch that will come out, a son of Jesse who will lead his people. So this is talking about ultimately the Messiah, the Lord. And in that day, he'll be beautiful and glorious. And the fruit of the land will be the pride and glory of the survivors in Israel. Interesting, survivors, remnant, those who are left by the grace of God. And then in that day, those who are left in Zion, the remnant, those who remain in Jerusalem, they will be called holy. And all who are recorded among the living in Jerusalem, the Lord will wash away the filth of the women of Zion. He will cleanse the bloodstains from Jerusalem by a spirit of judgment and a spirit of fire. Then the Lord will create over all of Mount Zion and over those who assemble there a cloud of smoke by day and a glow of flaming fire by night. And everything, the glory, over everything, the glory will be a canopy. It will be a shelter and shade from the heat of the day and a refuge and hiding place from the storm and rain. In other words, there's coming a future day of peace, of protection, a future day of cleansing in which God will make his people holy and then a future day of prosperity and peace. And it's interesting, isn't it, that in that future day of prosperity and peace, he uses the language that describes the people of Israel leaving Egypt this pillar of cloud and a pillar of fire. It will be their protection in that day. And so the passage, the whole thing, chapter 2 through chapter 4, begins with a beautiful picture of Jerusalem. It ends with a beautiful picture of Jerusalem. But here's what's happening right now. And because of your pride and because of your, your rebellion, in the immediate future, what you have to look forward to is humility, is humbling, being brought low. But in the future after that, 
is exaltation. But in righteousness, in cleansing, in holiness, and with the, the blessed hand of the Lord. So, you know, as we think about this, what, how, what does this mean for us? How does this apply to us? Obviously, Isaiah is saying this to the people of Jerusalem at that time. And the message, especially the message of judgment for Jerusalem, that was specifically for them. And it was going to come because of their sin. But we might could take much of what Isaiah says about the judgment of Jerusalem, and we can extend that kind of typologically and extend it eschatologically to, to describe what the Lord is going to do at the end of days. He's going to, bring, he's going to take all of this pride and, and human independence and human autonomy and trust in ourselves, and he's going to humble it. He's going to humble it. And Paul says that every knee will bow to the Lord Jesus Christ and name him Lord of all. So God's going to humble the, the prideful. And then after that day of judgment, there's going to be a new Jerusalem, isn't there? There's going to be a new Jerusalem. There's going to be this picture that Isaiah paints of God's people cleansed, holy, in this place of peace and prosperity and the Lord watching over them. And I think Isaiah, at the end of Isaiah, chapter 65, 66, as well as John in Revelation describes that day of this new Jerusalem, this new heavens and a new earth that is for the people of God, for the remnant, if you will of those who have been saved by the grace of God, cleansed, and then being brought into this new, perfect picture of Jerusalem that God has in store. I'm looking forward to that day. I hope you all are as well. Now, for the world, for those that are not in God's grace, there is judgment coming. And so may we, in a way, kind of be like Isaiah's and warn them of the judgment that is coming. But let's also look forward to and hope, as God's people, look forward and hope to the new Jerusalem, which is coming.